The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel, where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our way of leading. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God commanded man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth, to be fruitful and multiply in ideas and influence, and to cultivate the garden, making sense of the earth around them, subduing and replenishing it for His glory. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because this world needs you right now. No matter who you are or where you find yourself, it's my deep prayer that as you listen, meditate, become courageous to act, and go deeper in your walk with God, some of you just at the beginning of that journey, that you will be changed back into the original image and likeness in which you were created. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and share. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Good evening, and welcome to the School of Ministry and Leadership. This is our weekly gathering where we come before the presence of the Lord, we come before the word of the Lord, and we look into his word to understand what he has to say to us about leadership, how we equip ourselves to become godly leaders, how we become more Christ-like in our leadership. And this is our year of influence at Potter's Family Chapel. And so we are equipping ourselves to understand how indeed we um, occupy until the master returns, amen. So you're all welcome. On behalf of the head pastor of Potter's Family Chapel, Prophet Alex Armstrong, I'm delighted to welcome you all. I pray that you've had an empowered start to the week, and I pray that whatever it is that you've experienced today, the good or the bad, that you are coming to this assembly this evening with an open heart, ready to absorb what the Lord has prepared for us. So let us go ahead and pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies, which are fresh and new every morning. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity once again to gather as family, to gather beneath your word, to gather in your presence. Father, we thank you that you give us this opportunity to worship you every week with our minds according to your commandment, which says that we are called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds. And therefore, we bring our minds to you, Father, this evening. We ask you to shape us. Let your Holy Spirit whisper to us. Let the breath of the wind of God blow upon us, Lord, and blow away anything that would hinder us from receiving your word this evening. Blow into our minds, Lord, the possibilities of what you have for us. May we, after this assembly, Lord, go away and dream. May we imagine, may we see ourselves doing things that we never thought was possible before, only because we know that we have received something new from you this evening. In the name of Jesus, Father, we commit each and every soul 
that is gathered now and that will come in these two hours, Lord, to receive from you. We pray, Lord, that as they come, they will be transformed by your living spirit. We pray, Lord, that as they come, they will come believing that you are here. They will come ready to receive and they will come, Lord, with the courage to change so that even as we all, Lord, are changed, even as we all endeavor to fulfill the calls that you have given us, we will do it not for our own glory, but that you might be glorified through our lives. All of this we have prayed, believing in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. So you're all welcome. But let us go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm personally quite intrigued with the message that we have this evening because I think I think many of you will be surprised. It is a topic that might be uh, a not a familiar one as it relates to leadership. So I believe that we'll all see something new. We certainly will look at scriptures that are not often recognized as leadership scriptures, but there's something very deep and important here that the Lord is showing us about how we lead his people and just how important hospitality is to that form of leadership. So tonight we're going to look at the leader's hospitality and what does it mean to be a hospitable leader and why is the gift of hospitality just as important as, as all of the other gifts that uh, have been given to the church. So I always like to start just by reminding us that we come to the School of Ministry and Leadership because we understand that everyone has a leadership ability, that leadership is not about where you are located within your organization. Leadership is not about the position that you've been given, whether that's a position in your church or in your community, in your family or at your workplace but it is about an ability, it's a, it's a competency, it's a capability, which means that some elements of leadership can be learned, but most often leadership just has to be practiced, it has to be experienced, we learn by doing. And so in as much as we present some concepts and ideas here at the School of Ministry and Leadership, the idea is really to go away and to put into practice what we discuss here. We also like to remind you by um, stating that leadership is about character. It's about influence and it's about the choices that you make as a leader. It's not always just about strategies. It's not always just about plans or spreadsheets, but it's about character. The influences that flow out of your character and the choices that you make that come out of both your, your character and where you seek to exert your influence. And so in this year of influence, I've just been reminding us that this is a deeply prophetic word. And so we should take hold of that word to be influencers, no matter where we find ourselves, we should give ourselves to the study and the meditation and the prayer and the practice about influencing because God does want us to take territories being a spiritual leader, being a godly leader, is not just about being a leader in your Christian community. More and more, I understand that being a godly leader is just as crucial in a secular environment. All of those scriptures that we've been given about um, being ambassadors for Christ, when Jesus is talking about being salt and light, he's talking about how do you exhibit godliness in leadership in places where God is not wanted or God is not recognized and how to swim against those forces and how to exert influence in those places. So in our year of influence, it's my prayer that as we continue to 
um, receive new thoughts and new, new ideas about influence, develop a little bit of courage about how we exert our own influence. With humility, we try and we learn and we go back and do again to be able to influence new spheres and in new ways. I believe that we will be moving towards the fulfillment of the unique and individual calls that the Lord has placed on each and every one of us. Amen. So let's go ahead and recap very quickly where we were last week and then zoom right into our lesson for this evening. So last week we worship prayer and how that as a form of influence. We recall that this year our working definition of influence is the capacity to have an effect on people or processes and that that effect is indirect, but it's noticeable. And so last week when we were looking at leadership prayer as influence, we were saying that leadership prayer is a very different type of prayer. It's a type of prayer that we aren't usually used to praying. And so we, we introduced it last week as a, as a tool, if you will, or a skill set, something that you can pu pull out of your leadership toolbox and, and use. And we were saying that it certainly doesn't come to replace the other kinds of prayers that we would pray. After all, the Bible says that we are to pray all kinds of prayers. But leadership prayer is a form of prayer that seeks to influence or it seeks, it, it seeks to view influence as the care of souls. And so what we were saying last week is that one of the ways to lead those whom we follow is to really care for their souls and that care comes through leadership prayer. In other words, we begin to influence through prayer, number one, because we intercede for people, we hold them up before God, trusting that the Lord will move in their lives and that we actually begin to desire to work with him for him to show us what he's already at work doing in their lives. And so it's a different kind of intercession. We intercede for them, number two, and as we are doing that intercession, we begin to grow in compassion and in curiosity towards them because as we spend time with the Lord about them, we then find that we want to spend more time with them, actually, because we want to find out you know, just how God is working. We want to know a little bit more about their lives so that we can tailor our prayers. And so it, in essence, helps to deepen our relationship with them. And we made four points that distinguished leadership prayer from other kinds of prayer. We said, number one, that leadership prayer was focused more on people's inner lives than their outer lives. So we were looking at the difference between praying for their souls versus praying for their situations. Now, situation prayer is are the prayers that we, we normally pray. We, we want someone's situation to change. So we're praying for their breakthrough. We're praying for financial blessings. We're praying for that marriage, for that car. We're praying for those triplets. We're praying for their, their healing, whatever it is. Now, we weren't saying that those were useless prayers or those were prayers that should not be prayed, they should. But when we began to look at Paul's letters to the churches, we found that in his opening prayer to the people who he had been leading, 
the prayer that Paul would pray for them was always a prayer for their souls. He never prayed for the political situation to change. He never prayed for their economic situation to change. Paul was always praying that they should know the fullness of God, that they should come to the fullness of, of his wisdom, that they should grow in faith, that they should be embraced by his, his, his father's heart and know the length and depth and breadth and height of that love. What Paul was always praying for his people was that they would come to know the depth and the truth of Christ's love for them, of God the Father's love for them. And so he was really praying that their souls would absorb the fullness of what it now means to be in the gospel. And so the challenge to us is that when we pray for those whom we are leading, can we learn to pray this way? Can we pray for their inner lives more than their outer lives? Can we, we pray for their souls and not just their situations? The second point we made last week was that leadership prayer was focused more on relation than transaction. And this is related to the former point. But what we were saying was that in relation, what we want to do is we want really, as we, we pray these soul prayers for people, we then become really sort of curious and compassionate about them. And as we spend more time interceding for them and holding them up before the Lord, our hearts actually grow towards them, our relationship with them deepens. And this is very different from the kinds of situation prayers where we are praying, wanting to see God do something. We're praying, expecting to see the outcome of what it is that we've prayed for in a, in a, in a tangible way. But in the act of praying for your people this way, it may be that God is actually doing a work in you as well, that, he, that you are being transformed by this prayer just as much as the person whom you are praying for is being transformed. But it's a prayer that brings you in closer relationship with the person, but with God also. The third point that we made was that leadership prayer is focused more on people than programs. And again, what we were saying here is not that it is not good to pray for programs or a project or whatever your, your initiative, your intervention is. It's always good to pray for those things. But again, going back to the soul prayer, we were distinguishing that this kind of prayer is the prayer where you really pray for those people who you want to come to the program. So you don't just pray for overflow. You don't just pray for multiplication, that there's going to be 50 more people at the program or that everyone who comes is going to stay, but you really begin to pray for the souls of those people who are coming. You really begin to pray that God is going to do a work in their inner lives, that they're gonna have an encounter with Jesus for the first time, that they're going to understand the gospel in a way that they've never understood before. So the people become the focus again. We see that this is the thread throughout the leadership prayer, the leader's prayer that we're really focused on the souls of people rather than the stuff around them. And then the final point that we made about the leader's prayer, leadership prayer is focused more on God than on yourself. So in fact, last week, we started off by identifying that though we pray as leaders, it's very rare that we actually pray about our leadership. We sometimes do. I mean, we might ask God to, you know, help us make the presentation or help us stand before the people or, or help us get through the sermon or help us know what to do with that rebellious person. But 
what we were trying to point to was that leadership prayer is not that leadership and prayer, let me say it this way, leadership and prayer are not separate things. That you don't just pray on one side of your life and then lead on another side of your life. But that leadership and prayer are intertwined and they go together and they flow in everything. But secondly, and more to the point, that as a leader, when you come before the Lord to pray for yourself, you're not so much focused anymore on God help me. God help my weaknesses, God help me to be more uh, assertive in my leadership or help me be more persuasive. The leadership prayer is the prayer that makes God the focus. So in other words, God becomes the subject of the prayer and not just the object of the prayer. So in the leadership prayer, rather than praying for God to help us through our weaknesses or help us to overcome Yes, we need help with those things, but we're rather praying God be glorified. God be glorified by what I'm going to do tonight. God be glorified as I have that conversation with this person. God, let your will be known, let your glory be seen. So God moves out of just being the objective agent of the prayer to actually being the subject. So four ways that we see leadership prayer distinguished from the other kinds of prayer that we pray. And again, we're not saying that we throw all those prayers out the window. We're saying that this is just a different kind of prayer that as we practice it in our leadership, we will begin to see our leadership change. This form of prayer actually acts as a form of influence in those whom we're leading, but we also see God doing a work in us as we learn and practice to pray this kind of way. So that's what we looked at last week, the leadership prayer. And tonight we're going to look at the leader's hospitality, the leader's hospitality. So, so let's begin. We're looking at hospitality and leadership. And as I started off, I said that tonight's lesson might be a little bit surprising to some of us. Hospitality is not something that we necessarily think about when we think about leadership. We understand that it is a gift. We understand that there are some people who have the gift of hospitality more than others. But what we'll see tonight is that the leader's hospitality is actually crucial to being a leader of influence. And actually, it's deeply connected to our God's way of being, our, our God's character. God himself is a hospitable God. And we're going to see tonight just how important hospitality is to us as godly leaders. So of course we know that leaders are supposed to be hospitable. When we look at that list of qualifications to be an elder or to be a bishop, to be an overseer, that list that appears in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, we see that the quality of being hospitable appears in both of those. So we understand that um, hospitality is important as a leader. But what is hospitality? When we define hospitality, it's defined as the friendly and generous reception of guests, visitors, or strangers. The friendly and generous reception of guests, visitors, or strangers. So if you're writing, I want you to underline friendly, draw a circle around it if you have a highlighter, highlight it, 
and do the same for generous. So friendly reception of strangers and generous reception of strangers. So this is interesting for us to consider, particularly in light of the fact that we've spent the past several weeks talking about the fact that as God's people in the world, we are indeed foreigners. We're strangers in a strange land. And we looked at all of those scriptures that remind us of that. And yet it's amazing that when we look at God's commandments, so when we actually look at the Levitical law, God commands his people to be hospitable to the foreigners and, stra um, and strangers among them. And when we actually look at the Levitical law, this command, Leviticus 19, verse 33, actually appears under the laws of holiness and justice. So again, if you're writing, just underline laws of holiness and justice. It means that the law of hospitality is equal to holiness and justice. But the Lord says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, he says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native borns. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God, amen. So this is interesting. This is the scripture that Jesus quotes when he is asked, Rabbi, what are the two greatest commandments? He, he quotes, Jesus quotes the first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, all your soul, and all your mind. That's in Deuteronomy. And then he quotes this very, this very scripture, this very command, this very law that appears under the laws of holiness and justice, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. So right there, we are seeing that hospitality, the spirit of hospitality is important to our God. And what he says is that treat the foreigners amongst you well, love them as you love yourself, because I want you to remember that you were foreigners in Egypt before I let you out of bondage. So it points us to the fact that God had his chosen people, but he also had other people who weren't considered to be God's people, they were the foreigners, or we recognize them as being Gentiles, but there was an invitation to come in. And so the first thing that we notice, as I said already, is that to practice hospitality is, according to the law, to practice holiness and justice. But the other thing that we notice is that for those people who are far away from the Lord, he invites them to come close. So this points us to the fact that ultimately we are serving a hospitable God, that God is so concerned with hospitality. And in fact, when we look at the story of humanity, this is what we see. We see that in the beginning, in Genesis, God creates a garden. He creates a garden to host man. He creates the garden, he creates everything in it, makes it beautiful, and then he creates the man and the woman and places them in the garden. So God has essentially created an ambiance to host man. And when we go all the way to Revelations, we see that, okay, God starts at the beginning with a garden to host man, but then at the end of the story of humanity, he's actually built a city. He's built a city for man to dwell in eternally. It's a place where God wants to host humanity. 
And we have those beautiful scriptures that talk to us about how it will be in that day when we will all be seated at his banquet. We can imagine that long table where we will all have a place. And there are scriptures and the prophets that speak about, you know, the rich meats and the fine wines. And these are, in fact, the same scriptures that get repeated in, in Revelations. When we turn to Isaiah chapter 25, verses uh, verse 3 and then verse 6 to 8, let me read it just to whet our appetites and so that we have something to, to look forward to, so that we can we just think about our God who is going to host us in eternity. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Let me, not verse 3, just verses 6 to 8. Okay. The Bible says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Amen. So in that day when there's no more sorrow, when there's no more death, there's just this long banquet table of wonderful foods and we're all sitting around this, this family meal. We're sitting there because our God is hosting us. And what we see in those scriptures is that it's a banquet for all peoples. And in fact, it's repeated several times, all peoples, all nations. So going back to the, the Levitical law that we just read, Leviticus 19.33, where God commands his own people to show hospitality because he knows that he has a plan for all people. He commands his people to show hospitality because he knows that he has a plan for all people one day to be invited into his, 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 his hospitality and to be seated at his table. When we turn over and we look at Isaiah chapter 56, and here we start at the verse three and then jump down to verses six to eight. And here the Lord is speaking, especially to the foreigners, not to worry for them to be assured that they also have a place at the table. Verse three says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his peoples. And then when we jump down to the verse six, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So there again, the Lord is showing us that in his hospitality, it's not just for those who were originally his people, but there's an invitation for all who were, fall, who were far off. And this should be an encouragement to all of us because we have to remember that we are all peoples. We weren't the original chosen people of God. I know sometimes it's hard for us to think in those terms. Many of us were maybe born into 
uh, Christian families or you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, but we are all Gentiles. There's no one on this line who was born into a Jewish family. And so when God is speaking about all peoples, when he's speaking about Gentiles, it's a reference to us. But because we have that assurance that we have a seat at the table, we are called to be hospitable towards others, to bring those who are now far from God into his banquet. And we see that when the ecclesia was first formed, when the early church was being formed, that in fact, hospitality had a twofold function. At that time, when the Jews and the Gentiles began to come together in Christ, and they were beginning now, they had broken down the cultural barriers that separated them. They were beginning to eat with one another, whereas before that was totally illegal or unheard of. We see this in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. So we see right there that hospitality had a twofold function, not just to break down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. So we see now Jews and Gentiles eating with one another, entering into one another's homes, which before never used to happen, sharing food, sharing fellowship, selling their goods and sharing them amongst one another, taking care of the poor. That culture, those, those pre-existing religions that the, both Jews and Gentiles followed were broken down by this new hospitality. But the second function was really to form community, to form this new community in Christ and to be something that had never existed before. So by these scriptures, we're seeing that God uses hospitality. He uses hospitality as his own character to bring many, those who were once far off, into his table. So our first point in summary is that our God is a hospitable God. He's very concerned with hospitality. He uses hospitality. It's a reflection of his own character. And his hospitality is to bring those who were once far from him close into him and to assure them a seat at his table. Now, the second point that I want to make is that when we think about hospitality, I don't know what comes up for you, but I'm sure that if I asked you to, we already gave a definition of hospitality, but if I just asked you, what do you think about when you think of hospitality, what comes to mind? Most likely you would probably say that you think about the hospitality sector. So that probably has to do with entertainment. It probably has to do with leisure, with travel. Maybe it has to do with uh, five-star hotels, seven-star hotels. It has to do with quality customer service. Um, and so in, in a modern sense, when we think about hospitality, we think about entertainment, leisure. When you uh, are looking at 
hospitality schools. It's all about service, etiquette, that sort of thing. But this, as usual, is the world misleading us to believe something that is not. When we actually go back to the Latin and we look at the root of the word hospitality, which is the word hospes, H-O-S-P-E-S, the, the word hospes actually means stranger. It means foreigner. So tapping into where we started earlier about us being foreigners in the world, but also that God using his hospitality to bring the foreigner in to him. So hospitality comes from the word hospes, which means a stranger or a foreigner. But if we notice, it's the same word that we see in hospital. Hospital, and when we think about uh, what a hospice is, a hospice is a, is, a, is a hospital where people go and are cared for uh, in, in, in a long-term facility, usually a palliative care. Now, hospitals originated, what they were originally, and in fact, just a little church history trivia, hospitals actually began with the early church. There was nothing like hospitals before that time. Um, but what you had is when Christianity began to expand uh, through, through Rome and then through Europe, and you had all of those plagues, all of those uh, bubonic plagues and where people were dying, you found that it was the Christians who, because they had this world view of loving the poor, widow and orphan, that, that they would actually care for these people for free. And so when you actually go into sort of like the, the history of medicine, um, but also when you go into, when you look at, at church history, you, you understand that the development of the institution of hospitals actually has this history. So hospitals originated as charitable institutions for the needy or the infirm. It's hard for us to, to think about that because when we think about hospitals now, we usually think about places where you, you have to spend a lot of money. But once upon a time, hospitals were, were actually for free. And it was a place where people went to, to receive physical treatment and they were cared for. Now, when we think about hospitals, we always think about very important places. A hospital is a place where it's very high stakes, where it's life versus death, where there's a sense of urgency. The people who work in hospitals are considered heroes. You know, whenever you're watching a drama that takes place in a hospital, it's always, it's always high action and high impact. So we perceive hospitals as being very important places. And I want us to hold on to that perception because we should keep that perception when we think about then hospitality. If we begin to understand hospitality being every, every degree important as hospitals are, then the way we think about hospitality will now begin to change. So let's not think about hospitality the way the world thinks about it, which is entertainment and leisure and pleasure and service. Let us think about hospitality in the original way that it was meant, which was about caring for the stranger, caring for the foreigner, caring for the one who's infirm or in need. And if the hospital is the place where the physically sick go and 
it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an urgent case of life versus death, then in our hospitality as leaders, we need to think about caring for the spiritually sick, for the foreigner, for those who are in pain, for those who are hurting, for those who need unburdening. And that will give a new sense of urgency to the way we practice hospitality in our leadership. So why is this important? It becomes important because we have to pause to understand that there are people who are in pain all around us, spiritual pain. In your family, in your office, in your community, and most likely even in your church, there is someone who is lonely, there's someone who is hurting, there's someone who is feeling burdened, there's someone who feels like they don't belong, there's someone who feels invisible. And so as you begin to practice hospitality in your leadership, you are extending God's healing, Jesus's healing to this person. You're extending a new sense of value, a new sense of identity, hope and purpose as you offer hospitality to people. And we will um, look at what that means in practice. But I want us to just set our minds, number one, on the urgency and importance of hospitality, that hospitality doesn't just have to do with very fine customer service, but it has to do with the healing and caring for people's souls. And Charles Spurgeon, who is the 19th century pastor, he says that every true Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every true Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, those are very strong, very strong words, very strong terms. You're either a missionary as a Christian or you're a fake, is what he's saying, what he said over 150 years ago. But the reason why I'm quoting Spurgeon here is because I want us to begin to think about hospitality as your mission field. That as you extend hospitality to people around you as a leader, you are in fact enacting that missionary spirit. You're extending the gospel to them and you're allowing Jesus to heal them spiritually as you minister to them in your leadership. So. That's the second point that we're making. The first point, simply that our God is a hospitable God. The second point that we have to take hospitality seriously, that it's just as urgent, just as life or death, and we never think about hospitality in those terms, but as godly leaders, we need to. So now I want to look at Jesus's earthly ministry and what so often happens when we look at Jesus is that we find many paradoxes. And I just want to make a distinction here because when we speak about a paradox, we're speaking about a mystery. We're speaking about something that maybe to the naked eye doesn't quite make sense. But I never want us to think about a paradox as being a contradiction because we know that there are no contradictions in the Bible, that God's word is sovereign and we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So when we see things in the Bible that don't make sense to us, it's just that they don't make sense to us, but it's not that they contradict one another. But what then is the paradox of Jesus's ministry? If we're speaking about God being a hospitable God, about his character being one of hospitality, about 
him being so concerned about hospitality, hospitality. The paradox of Jesus's coming to earth is that the hospitable God actually comes to earth as a guest. He himself tells us that the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So when Jesus, when the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, when it dwelled amongst us, Jesus basically came to earth as a guest, as a foreigner. So the God who has created everything to host us comes to us in the form of a guest. And I find that amazing. But when we look at the scriptures, we see Jesus often as a dinner guest in the homes of so many people. We have him as a guest in Peter's house. And when he ministered to Peter's mother, she gets up and she begins to wait on him. We see Jesus at Matthew's house. After Matthew was called, he throws a huge banquet for Jesus and all of his tax collector friends come. We see Jesus eating at the homes of Pharisees, different Pharisees, sometimes they're named, sometimes they're not named. So Jesus didn't only eat with the wine bibbers and the sinners, but he, he, he was a guest at the Pharisees' homes as well. We see Jesus at Martha's house. We see Jesus at Lazarus's house. So oftentimes in the scripture, in the, in, the, in the gospels, we have these accounts of Jesus being a dinner guest. And the only time that we see Jesus hosting, so to speak, for lack of a better word, is when he fed the 5,000 and also when he fed the 4,000. So we have two different accounts. And some Bible scholars think that those two episodes took place on the different banks of the the Sea of Galilee. So there was a Jewish side of the sea where Jesus fed the 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And then we have another episode where he feeds 4,000 and scholars believe that that was on the other side of the lake, on the Gentile side. So if that's true, then what we have is Jesus, who's the bread of life, feeding both the Jews and the Gentiles. What's interesting about those episodes in the in the gospels is that all of the accounts that record them speak about how the people all ate and were satisfied and that there were fragments left over and when we turn back to isaiah chapter 55 when we turn back to isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 to 3 we hear the lord speaking through the prophet and he is calling those who are hungry and those who are thirsty to come who don't have money to come and to eat of him. The Bible says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Amen. So that's what God spoke through the prophet in Isaiah. And when we see Jesus feeding the crowds, feeding between 15 and 25,000 people who didn't have any money, multiplying the loaves and the fish and eating until everyone was satisfied, we see that Jesus in those feedings, in that, in that moment of hosting his people, is indeed fulfilling the scripture and showing us that he was the bread of life, that he was the one to those 
who were hungry and who had no money could come and eat and be fully filled and be fully satisfied. And in this scripture, he also points to, again, the banquet table in the New Jerusalem, where he's speaking about coming and being able to delight in the richest of fare. And this very scripture is the scripture that Jesus will quote in the festival in John chapter 7, verse 37, where he stands up and he declares, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you the rivers of, of living waters. So this is an important scripture. But just coming back to the point that in his earthly ministry, Jesus was more often a guest. He was more often a foreigner and a visitor, a stranger, than he was the host. But in the moments where he did host, the people ate and were satisfied. And the second time where we see Jesus hosting, so to speak, is at the Passover meal, of course, what we call the Last Supper, where he shares with his disciples before his arrest. He teaches them. He prays for them. But before all of that, we'll see it in a moment, he washes their feet. And so that is an act of, of great hospitality as well. And he explains to them what it is that he's done. But we'll read that in just a moment. So what's interesting when we look at all of the different gospel writers who all cover different dinners, they don't all, they don't all write about the same dinners, they don't all write about them in the same way, but when we look at the gospels, we see that they each tell us something different about Jesus's hospitality or God's hospitality. So we'll just look at Matthew, Luke, and John this evening. And then I'll ask a few questions and then we will open it up for discussion. So let's look at Matthew's gospel first. When we look at Matthew, Matthew writes and he shows us that hospitality, the spirit of hospitality is about showing forth God's mercy, that God uses relationship through hospitality to be merciful. Now, when we look at both Matthew chapter 9, let's turn there, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. This is when Matthew, the tax collector, was called. So let's read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and then we will flip over and look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So let me read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. And when we look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, I won't read the whole thing, but this is the story where Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they're all hungry, so they begin to pluck the heads of grain. And again, when the Pharisees see this, they shout out and they complain, 
Look at what your disciples are doing. They're, they're working on the Sabbath and this is unlawful. So then Jesus gives them the story of when David and his men entered into the Holy of Holies and ate the, the showbread, which was unlawful for them. But when I go down to the verse seven, let me start from the, let me start from the verse six. This is the point that I just want us to hear. In the verse six, Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the, so, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. So Jesus is recorded in two different places quoting this scripture and in fact challenging the Pharisees to go and learn what it really means. He knows that the Pharisees know this scripture because they're Pharisees, they know the law, but they don't know what it means. They're not living the fullness of it. They know the word, the letter of the law, but they don't know the spirit of it. And that particular scripture that I desire mercy and not sacrifice comes to us from Hosea 6, 6, where the Lord says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than a burnt sacrifice. So what Jesus is pointing to us here in these two scriptures that Matthew records is that what God is after is he's at, he, he desires to be more merciful. He desires to show us mercy and therefore he expects us to be merciful to others. And he doesn't want the burnt offerings that are empty and that are far away from the intimate knowledge of God. And how better to get to know someone than when you share a meal with them. When we speak about fellowship, oftentimes we maybe limit it to just the chit chat that takes place after a service. But in the time of Jesus, when he was walking on earth, what they were speaking about is they were speaking about spending time with one another, breaking bread with one another, having a meal. And you can all testify that for the people who you know very well, you know them probably because you spent a lot of time with them eating. It's a, it's a time where you're relaxed. It's a time of informality. It's a time when you're cracking jokes. And the people who you, vice versa, who you have spent a little bit of time with, maybe over food or, or you know, a tea, what have you, just being in someone's kitchen while they had to do chores, those are times where you got to know the person maybe in a, in a way that you hadn't known them before. So by these two scriptures, Matthew was showing us and the fact that Jesus repeats, he quotes Hosea 6, 6 twice to the Pharisees, it means that he thought that this was an important point, that God will have mercy and not sacrifice, that what God is after is an intimate knowledge or, or a relationship, for lack of a better word. And relationship gets built through hospitality. And so we have these pictures of Jesus eating with all these kinds of people, not because he didn't have anything to do, not because he didn't have a purpose or a mission that had to be filled, but because he was letting people come to know God through the relationships that they would have with him that were built up through relationship. So the first point Matthew shows us is that hospitality is about showing forth God's mercy. Now, when we go to Luke and we look at what Luke sought to show us through Jesus's various dinners with people, 
It's interesting for us to note that Luke was the only of the gospel writers who was not a Jew. Luke was a Gentile. And I point that out to us because it's interesting for us to know that Luke's gospel is actually the gospel that has the most to say about Jesus's dinner plans that he had with people. Luke gives us Jesus being anointed by the sinful woman. Luke gives us the good Samaritan. Luke gives us Jesus at Martha's house. He gives us um, Jesus both in the same episodes that Matthew covered. He gives us Jesus teaching on the parable of the lost son, the fact that the father throws a party upon his return. So in all of these examples, and then he also gives us, Luke also gives us the parable of the banquet, of the, of the father's banquet. The fact that many, all in fact, are invited, but few are chosen. This is significant to us because Luke as a Gentile was moved and wanted us to see the fact that God's hospitality, the hospitality that Jesus spent time engaging with, was really to show us that God's mercy is for those who are far from him. So that's why we see Jesus eating with the, the so-called sinners, eating with the foreigners, eating with the, the junior people and not the senior people. At Martha's house, when Martha expects Jesus to tell Mary to get into the kitchen to start helping her, Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better part and that that won't be taken from her. So Jesus uplifts Mary even though she's the junior sister, but because even though she is at that banquet, she's at that, that dinner with, with them, Mary has chosen the fellowship to sit at Jesus's feet rather than being in the kitchen worrying about the stuff. So the fact that Luke was a Gentile and he captures for us many more of these stories of Jesus interacting through hospitality with those who were not considered, those who were far from God, it shows us that God's mercy is for those who are far from him. And when we look at John, what we see in John's gospel about God's hospitality is it shows us Jesus as the son of God through his hospitality. So John's gospel is filled with miracles. It's filled with Jesus fulfilling very, very clear pictures of how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that had been given of him. We see the miracle at the Cana wedding where Jesus turns water into wine. So this is a, an episode again where Jesus is engaging in hospitality by going to a wedding. And he's not the host, he's a guest, but they call on him and his mother tells the servants that whatever he says to do, they should just do it because she knows that even though he's not hosting the people, there's a, there's a problem with the event that's happening, but he has an answer to it. And so we see his first miracle where he changes water to wine. And then we see the host, in fact, the governor of the wedding, making the comment that this is the best wine that they've ever had. So that miracle is an evidence of Jesus being the son of God. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and he actually tells her point blank that he is the Messiah. He does that, he makes that announcement to her at the end of 
an, um, an episode where he, in fact, asks her to host him. He sat down at the well. She has appeared to draw her water, and he asks her to give him a drink. In other words, he asks her to host him. And in their interaction, in their exchange, it's at the end of that exchange where he tells her point blank that he is the Messiah. So there's no parables, there's, there's, there's nothing to decipher. Jesus confesses to this woman in this interaction of hospitality that he is indeed the son of God. As I already said earlier at the festival in John 7:37, where on the last day of the great festival, Jesus stands up and he shouts that whoever is thirsty should come to him and he will give them rivers of living water. Speaking of the Holy Spirit that had not been given, but he is quoting, he's showing himself as the fulfillment of the verse that we read earlier in Isaiah 55. But most importantly, we come to the description that John gives us of the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples before he's arrested. And this is the only account in all four gospels where we get the detail uh, that we don't get in the, other, in the other accounts. And it's in John chapter 13 where we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet which, as I said, is a great act of hospitality. And we see this in John chapter 13, verses 12 to 17. Let me just read it. The Bible says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. So that is the height of hospitality for Jesus to remove his cloak, bend down, wash the dusty feet of his disciples. We know that they had walked long and hard that day, wash his, their feet, prepare them for this Passover dinner, and then speak to them that they should take note of what he has just done for them, what he has just hosted for them, but that he also has an expectation that they should go and do likewise, and there's a blessing in it if they do. So let's recap, and then let's close this segment, and then welcome our respondent, and then open the floor. This evening, we've been speaking about the leader's hospitality. Of course, we know that leaders are supposed to be hospitable. We see that characteristic being listed in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8 about the traits of an overseer. What does a godly leader need to be? We see hospitable in that list. But we've defined hospitality this evening as the friendly and generous reception of guests, visitors, or strangers. And we note this in the light of the fact that, of course, being God's people, we are strangers here on the earth. And yet we saw in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, that God commands even his people to 
do right by the foreigners among them, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, in other words. Now, the first point that we made is that we serve a hospitable God, that ultimately God is concerned with hospitality, that the story of humanity begins with God creating us a garden to host us, and that at the end in the book of Revelations, we see that he's built a city to host us in, and that there's this banquet dinner, a very long table laid down with all the best foods, fine wines, delicious summer fruits, everything you can imagine, ice cream, I mean, whatever you want, kinky, whatever you want, it's there on the table, and that he is hosting us in this time. But that God's hospitality is not just for his people, but he's a hospitable God because he wants to invite those who are far from him also, those who don't know him, those who were not originally his chosen people, but now through Christ Jesus are invited to come to the table. So our God is a hospitable God. The second point that we made is that hospitality is not what we think it is. We normally think it's about entertainment or leisure, but we have to think about hospitality the way we think about a hospital because they share the same root word. And so the same kind of urgency that we place on hospitals as being places of healing is the same urgency that we need to place on our hospitality as leaders, that we should be friendly and generous to people that we lead so that Jesus can heal them through our acts of friendliness and generosity to them. That people come to us maybe not seeking physical healing, but there's a spiritual, emotional, mental healing that needs to take place and that we can extend to them. The third point that we made was that there's a paradox in Jesus's earthly ministry in the sense that our hospitable God comes to earth and he is essentially a guest but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But while he walked the earth, we see Jesus constantly being a guest in the homes of different kinds of people. He ate with the simple, he ate with the Pharisees, he ate with women, he ate with men. And the only time that we saw Jesus really hosting people, so to speak, was when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000. And in those two episodes, we saw that all ate and all were satisfied. So we see our hospitable God coming to earth and dwelling amongst men as a guest, allowing men to practice and extend to him hospitality, and also through that learn his own mercy and his own character. And when we then look at the gospel accounts, in um, Matthew, Luke, and John in particular, we see that they show us three different perspectives about God's hospitality or about Jesus's hospitality. In Matthew, we saw that hospitality is really about showing forth God's mercy, that Jesus says in two different places that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. And so the act of getting to know people through hospitality is a form of building relationship, which shows us that God wants intimacy. He wants relationship. He doesn't want the rules and the regulations and the, the religion of the burnt sacrifices. He's after intimacy. And he's after intimacy in order to release mercy, but that he expects us to be merciful also. When we look at 
Luke, who was the Gentile writer and who maybe noticed more of Jesus eating with the so-called sinners or the so-called Gentiles or foreigners, we saw that that mercy is extended through hospitality, through relationship, in order for God to be able to call those who are far from him, in order to let them pull up a seat at the table. And then in John's gospel, finally, we see Jesus showing us through his various acts of hospitality that he is indeed the son of God. So let's ask a few questions here. How does all of this relate to leadership and how are you going to translate hospitality into your leadership? So simply put, as a leader in Christ, the first thing it means is that you are free to receive others as Christ has received you. You're free to love them, you're free to forgive them, you're free to be patient with them, just the same way Christ has been patient with you, has received you, has loved you, and has forgiven you. So practically, how do you do that? The first thing to do simply is to pay attention to people, to listen to people with humility. And I know that many times we've practiced this thing in SML, this exercise that we used to do where you would get into pairs and you would just have to listen to your partner speak for five minutes without interruption. No asking questions, no looking away, no dawdling on your phone, just listen to them. And what was always interesting about that exercise is that when you were in the role of the listener, it felt like a very long time because you weren't used to being listened to for such a long time without any kind of interruption. It was a lot of intense focus. Sorry, when you're the speaker. And what you also notice when you were in the role of the listener is that sometimes it was very difficult to listen without interrupting. You wanted to ask a question or you, you had to train your mind to really be focused on what the person was saying and not let your mind wander. So there's a way of listening. And when we listen with humility, we're listening to what people are really saying. We're listening to the things that they don't say with words, but that their, their souls are really crying out to you. But you're listening for, you know, what are the idols in their life so that as a, as a godly leader, you can address them. But you're also looking for the things that they're hopeful and joyful of in the future so that you can keep their hopes and their eyes trained on Christ. So you do that as a leader by asking good questions. You do that by asking questions that probe where you're going layer by layer probing so that you can get deeper to the matter. But sometimes you're also just listening without asking questions. You're listening to let them just speak the fullness of whatever it is on their heart that they need to be unburdened of. And you also have to be willing to share with them. People are wary when they give and they don't get anything back. So as a leader, you can't just retreat into your own shell of self-protection or self-preservation. You also have to be willing to share your life with the people who you're leading. And we see in 1 Thessalonians that, I think it's chapter two, verse eight, where Paul writes this to the Thessalonians and he says, you know, we loved you so much that we shared not only the gospel with you, but we shared our lives as well. And that kind of captures what this spirit of hospitality in leadership is. It's to be with people, to pay attention to them, to listen with humility, to ask good questions, engage with them. And that hospitality, though we've been looking at these 
biblical examples of, of actually breaking bread. I know that not everyone feels as though they can go for a meal. I know things are expensive. I know, I know times are hard. So it may not be that you're always going out and you're always physically eating with people. But Love Feast is, is happening soon and that can be a great opportunity for you to just choose someone that you have maybe not spent a lot of time with and just spend a few moments with them, listening to them, sharing with them, asking them questions, paying attention to them. We spoke earlier about the reason why hospitality is important in leadership is because people are hurting. People are hurting, people are feeling lack of belonging, they're feeling invisible, they're feeling, they have burdens and they don't have anyone to help them unburden themselves. And so as a leader, you're looking for these people with whom you can break bread with, if not physical food bread with, at least a moment of hospitality. So hospitality is really about recognition. It's where you use simple acts to just welcome someone, be with someone, have fellowship with someone. And as a leader, when you do that, what you are saying, what your actions are saying, is you're, you're saying to the person that you are welcome here. You're saying to the person that you belong here. You're saying to the person, pull up a seat and come and sit at my table. And you're exercising the grace and the mercy of Christ. And I think this is our final scripture, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, which remind us about hospitality. It speaks it very, very clearly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I'll start from 8. It says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, amen. So when we practice hospitality in our leadership, we are behaving as faithful stewards, not unfaithful stewards of the grace that we've received from God. We are sharing the gifts that we've been given and we are doing it, as the verse nine says, without grumbling. We're offering that welcome for free. So as a leader, let me just ask you a few final questions. As a leader, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Because the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, Leviticus 19.33. Who are you letting into your life? Who are you letting into your time? Who are you generously receiving and pouring into? Who are you breaking bread with? Who are you forming community with? Who are you loving as yourself? And finally, who are you bringing to God's table? Amen. <laughs>